morning, Millington Baptist Church family and uh, friends and extended family. Thank you so much for tuning in to watch our broadcast this morning. We hope that you've enjoyed our worship service so far. It's that time in the service where we dig into God's Word, and so if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that now and open it up to Romans uh, chapter 14 as we continue in our series through the book of uh, Romans. We've made it all the way to chapter 14, and let me begin this message with a uh, true story. Let me show you this famous marble statue by Michelangelo. It's called the Pieta. It's a beautiful statue of Jesus and Mary from 1498. It's housed in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Uh, Well, it was until on May 21st, 1972, a mentally disturbed man named Laszlo Toth walked into the chapel and attacked the sculpture with a hammer. Uh, With 15 separate blows, he removed Mary's arm, her nose, one of her eyelids, and several other small pieces as parts of this marble statue began to fly everywhere uh, before another man nearby stopped him and wrestled him uh, to the ground. It was an appalling attack on a priceless work of art. It was a terrible thing to damage Michelangelo's masterpiece. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, guests who are watching today, I want to talk to you this morning about uh, a very serious matter. It's the damage uh, done when the church, the one that Christ died to create, gets struck with the blows of hurtful words, hard feelings, and painful conflicts. You see, sometimes because of unnecessary divisions, parts of the church begin to break off and fly everywhere into different alliances and contingencies and and factions. It's this damage that's done uh, because sometimes someone will allow a personal viewpoint or a strong opinion or an individual preference to destroy the beauty of God's masterpiece. This is very difficult uh, to repair, but more than that, It also breaks the heart of our Lord Jesus. Remember what he prayed for the night before he died in John chapter 17. He said to his father, I pray that they may all be one, just as you and I are one. Uh, This unity was the vision of the Lord Jesus. Uh, But William Temple is right uh, when he said this, I believe in one Catholic and apostolic church, but regret that it does not exist. We live in an increasingly polarized society. We see it on the news every day. Uh, We hear it in casual conversations on a variety of issues. We certainly see this on social media as friends unfriend and unfollow each other on Facebook and Instagram uh, based on their different views. We, We see alive and well things like confirmation bias and intractability, and we see strong, impenetrable walls being set up between people, and this can even occur between Christian brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, this is not a new problem. Uh, Divisions were present at the church in Rome in the first century. They are addressed in our text today, Romans chapter 14, verse 1 through chapter 15, verse 7. The title of my message is Church Unity, uh, Principles in How to Disagree Well. Notice the issue is not that we won't disagree. The issue is how can we learn to disagree well? Here in our message, we're going to see three key principles uh, that we can learn. The first is don't sweat the small stuff. The second is don't think me, think we. And the third is don't forget the buckets, there's three. 
Uh, don't, don't sweat the small stuff. Don't think me, think we. And don't forget the buckets. There's three. That's where we're headed. Why don't we pause and pray before we open up God's word together. Would you pray with me, those of you watching at home, let's pray together and ask God's blessing on our time now. Heavenly Father, thank you for preserving this text for us today. Thank you for Paul's wisdom and courage to address uh, the issues that were tearing apart your church in Rome. Now help us to see how this applies so relevantly in our day. Help us to learn to be advocates for church unity and give us all insight into our own hearts. Show us where we all need to grow. Would you make us ever more into the likeness of your son who died that we might not only have fellowship with you, but also might have fellowship with one another in your body, the church, for your glory. We pray all of this for Christ's sake and for his reputation. Amen and amen. I have uh, personally been amazed at how uh, relevant these texts have been considering our current cultural moment. We're not deviating from our series in Romans here at all, yet we still keep finding uh, very relevant messages for where we are today. That's the power of the Word of God that is uh, sharp and uh, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Remember the context here? We're in the second half of the book of Romans, chapter 12 through 16, where uh, Paul has told us that the gospel's leading us somewhere. The gospel is taking us somewhere into this transformation process, and the gospel takes over our lives and, and takes us in a completely different direction as it does its transforming work in our hearts. And so here is a very specific area, the area of when we disagree with another brother or sister in the body. How do we handle that? Uh, well, let's pick it up with verse one. Paul says this, "'Accept the one whose faith is weak "'without quarreling over disputable matters. "'One person's faith allows them to eat anything, "'but another whose faith is weak only eats only vegetables.'" The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Let's pause right there. Now, here we have a few things I want you to notice in these first three verses. Notice there's quarreling over the issue of diet. Now, the church in Rome was diverse. It began with a group of Jewish visitors from Rome who were present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.10. That makes it clear. They became followers of Christ and took the message back to Rome, and the church in Rome initially consisted of Jewish believers or Messianic Jews. But that changed over time with Gentiles outnumbering Jewish believers, and tension had grown between the two groups, and it was sabotaging the life of the church, and it was tearing the church apart. There was these Gentile believers, they enjoyed eating beef, pork, chicken, fish, other kinds of meat. They were not raised with any dietary restrictions. They, they had simply heard the good news about Jesus and faith alone and the gospel, and they, they just were part of this new movement, and, and they didn't think that eating these, this kind of food was a, a big deal to them whatsoever. But then on the other hand, you have these other church members who had very restrictive eating practices. This was probably tied to their Jewish heritage. They didn't feel comfortable eating certain kinds of meat. And, and the other reason was because in Rome, a lot of the meat in that culture uh, had come from an animal which had first been sacrificed as a worship offering uh, to an idol in a pagan temple. And so for those folks, to eat that meat felt like they were participating in the idolatry themselves. Uh, this is the exact same kind of problem that happened over in the church at Corinth, as Paul has a very similar parallel passage over there. Uh, take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7. Paul says, some people 
Uh, I'll show you this on the screen. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Notice the word conscience there. Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley in their excellent book on this topic define conscience this way. It is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. It's your awareness of what you think is right or wrong. And so your conscience is a very interesting and mysterious uh, part of you that seems to be somewhat independent of you, right? And if you're, if you're in alignment with it, you feel innocent. But if you're not, then you feel guilty. Your conscience sometimes bothers you, or your conscience sometimes won't stop bothering you, and it begins to torment you. Like you hear stories about people who have committed crimes, and even though they didn't get caught, they end up turning themselves in. Uh, be- why? Because they're tormented by their consciences. However, the conscience is also something that can be shaped by how we were raised, or even by our culture. And so the Bible states that the conscience can be desensitized and numbed by sinning continually in an area and justifying it. One time it says the conscience can get seared like with a hot iron, where something sinful doesn't even phase you anymore, even though it should. And so sometimes the conscience is out of alignment, and it must be recalibrated according to God's Word. This is exactly where it gets tricky. Convictions of conscience can be funny things because as time goes by, we sometimes realize in retrospect that what we held on to so very tightly really didn't matter as much as we originally thought it did. Sometimes we grow up with certain rules that are not necessarily rules from the scriptures. They were like family rules or just social rules, but our consciences began to relate to those rules on the same level as if they were from the Word of God itself directly. But then we can see in retrospect how our rigidity about a certain tradition then caused damage to our relationships with others, and of course, that's not good. As an aside, I see this a lot in marriage conflicts. Uh, People grow up with certain rules and certain preferences and certain expectations of of what their husband or wife should be doing, and uh, it's really just an individual preference, but one of the spouses elevates their preference to that level of right and wrong, and it causes all kinds of hard feelings. These expectations are like glass walls. You don't even know that they're there until you bump into one of them. Go back to Romans 14 with me. Paul says there's these two groups, and they are quarreling over these disputable disputable matters, over issues of conscience. The word quarreling here is actually really strong. It means to determine someone's value. In other words, this was not just a debate about abstract concepts. It was much more personal than that, and that's why it became so divisive. When they would gather, there would be these hard feelings toward each other, kind of like microaggressions. Maybe they didn't talk to each other, or maybe they just wouldn't sit near each other, or maybe they just didn't want to be with one another. We don't know, but they were quarreling about this, and it doesn't take much, right? Uh, Author John Lawrence says it this way, one harsh word or look, one sarcasm, one moment of stridency, of biting coldness or hidden hostility in a religious discussion shuts us off from each other. Remember, we heard about that with Micah Parker in our kids' message for this morning. Our words uh, sometimes can get us into a lot of trouble. That's all it takes sometimes, and churches can be very fragile things. Uh, Going back to our text here, we see that Paul says there's two groups of people. There's those whose faith is weak, and then by default, we also know that there's those whose faith is strong. Now, 
The word weak is actually not as pejorative as it sounds at first. It refers to their consciences being weak, being sensitive or being tender, especially about cultural or ceremonial customs. They have very strong opinions about those things, whereas the other group, the strong group, has a conscience which is more free from condemnation about those matters, and they just don't really get hung up on them. It's possible to be even a weak Christian in one area and a strong Christian in another area, the same person. Those roles can be reversed pretty quickly. But here, Paul has a word for both groups. I want you to notice that because each group has its own separate temptation. First, for those with the weak or more strict conscience, the vegetarians here, they, they took pride in their self-discipline, and the text says that they judged their more liberally-minded brothers and sisters. Do you see that word? In other words, they looked across the aisle and said, you know, you keep doing that, that's a slippery slope, you look a little too much like the world, uh, you know, how could a person be a real Christian and do such and such? I don't know if my kids should be playing with your kids, right? Uh, the poem of the weak Christian goes like this, you need to look as I look and do always as I do, then and only then will I fellowship with you. And so those with a weak conscience had this problem of being judgmental but those with a strong conscience had a totally different struggle. They treated the other group with contempt. Do you see that? They, they ridiculed them. Uh, they despised them. That, that word means that they, they looked down on the weak as simple and narrow-minded. Like, hey, listen, you don't like it. That's, that's like your problem. Uh, the strong felt indifferent towards the weak. So they said, you know, you guys are dinosaurs, why won't you get with the times? Why are you so uptight about everything? You need to lighten up. You're, you're holding us back from reaching the world of urban Gentiles. All you do is present all these rules and regulations all the time. And so they treated them with contempt. The more strict conscience judges the other group, and, and those with a, a, a stronger conscience treats the other group with contempt. It's exactly these two attitudes which are so divisive back then and today. Now, I want you to notice one more thing in verse 1. Paul says, don't quarrel over what he calls a disputable matter. Do you see that term? That's a very technical term. It's translated in other Bible versions as differing opinions or doubtful issues. These issues are also called secondary issues or peripheral matters or areas of Christian liberty. I like to just call it the small stuff. Paul says, don't sweat the small stuff. The technical term theologians use for these issues is called adiaphora. It's just a big word that means the range of morally neutral actions, neither good nor bad, uh, things neither commanded nor forbidden by the word of God. Say that word with me at home. Ready? Adiaphora. Very good. Now back then, the popular adiaphora issues in the first century had to do with diet and sometimes alcohol and sometimes celebrating certain holidays. Over time, though, since cultures change over time, the adiaphora changes over time along with it. So let's get really practical. Let me just give you some examples of adiaphora in our culture that have manifested in the church. In the 1960s, a great debate began to erupt about rock and roll music and whether or not Christians can listen to rock and roll music. In the 1970s, a similar debate surrounded appropriate dress code on Sundays. In the 1980s, there arose a big disagreement about Bible versions and which one we should be using. Uh, in the 90s and early 2000s, there was a debate surrounding whether Christians could read books like the Harry Potter series. Uh, today, 
uh, the issues are, are numerous. There, there's disagreements about uh, philosophies of parenting and, and what's most effective. There's, there's differences about parental discipline. There's dis- differences about what schools we should send our children to, public, private, or, or homeschool. There's disagreements about church ministry decisions, right? Which programs are the most effective? Uh, which spiritual gifts are still operating in the church today? Which end times view is the correct view? Uh, there's disagreements about leadership structure. Should we have a senior pastor or a pastoral leadership team? There are so, so, so many examples of adiaphora and gray areas that it's just almost an endless list. Now, when it comes to these, these issues, the answers to those questions are not as clear as you might think, and there are legitimate differences of opinion by good and godly people on all sides of each issue. So it's okay to disagree on disputable issues. God allows us to have that kind of diversity. The trick is to maintain our unity in the middle of that diversity. The the trick is to say we want to maintain unity but not demand uniformity. The trick is to remember that our oneness is not based on our sameness. The trick is can we not sweat the small stuff? The trick is not, not that we won't disagree, It's can we disagree well? That's the question. It's okay to have opinions on gray areas. I do. It's even okay to have rules, rules for yourself, rules for your family. I know I have rules. Rules are not inherently bad, right? For those of us who have a strict conscience about certain things, uh, we get pretty firm about those things, and, and, you know, that's not an issue. Here's the problem. One of my professors, Harold Honer, used to say this. The problem is not the rules, The problem is our attitude about the rules. That's the problem. You see, it's our attitude that can lead to this legalism or ridicule and division. That's not good. Now, you might say, well, who's really right, though? And who's really wrong here? Is their diet sinful or not? I mean, that will solve the problem, but that's actually not what the Apostle Paul does. Instead, he says something to both sides. He says, both of you guys are wrong. You're both out of line. You both need to adjust your attitude. You both need to think we, not just me. And so in verses 4 through 12, he addresses the attitude problem of the weak. And then in verses 13 and following, he addresses the attitude problem of the strong. They both have something to learn. I'm not going to go through all those verses, but here's a few things that he says uh, to the weak group. He says in verse 4, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. Again, dropping down to verse 10, he says, for we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. In other words, to the weak, he says, you've forgotten that you're not the judge. God is. You're not their master. God is. They don't answer to you. They answer to God. Let God sort out these matters in dispute. It's above your pay grade. Stop passing judgment on one another. That's the word to the weak. Then he gives a separate word to the strong. Uh, Drop down with me to verse 14. He says to the strong, if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Now, isn't that something? That's so interesting to me because knowing the theology of Paul from elsewhere, I expected Paul to say, 
Guys, here's the deal. We're living under the new covenant now. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 7 that the meat eaters are actually right. All food is clean. End of discussion, period, full stop. That's not what he says, even though that might be theologically accurate. That's not the wisdom the Apostle Paul gives for this specific situation. Instead, he says, out of love for your brother, don't let them be distressed. He goes on to say in chapter 15, verse 1, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. He says, you, you've, got, you've got your freedom, okay, but there's no reason to flaunt your freedom. Why? That's not being loving. That, that's being self-centered. That's thinking me, not we. That's not the way of Christ. You ought to think first, not about me, but about we. It's not about you, it's about us. Martin Luther said it well. He said this, the Christian man is, most, is a most free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian man is a most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. And so to both groups, Paul says, stop fighting with each other about these gray areas. It's not worth causing division over this. In other words, think we, not just me. I mean, what's more important, you being right or the church being unified? The church being unified. What's more important, you feeling morally superior or the church being unified? The church being unified. What's more important, you getting your way or the church being unified? The church being unified is the answer every single time. It's such a remarkable solution, isn't it? The principle here is it's about us. Here's a good summary of application for both groups. He says in chapter 14, verse 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Make every effort. That means church unity is not going to come naturally and it's not going to be easy. Make every effort. Make every effort. Brothers and sisters, that takes maturity. Now you might say, well, Pastor Dave, I get that, but aren't there some things that are, that are clearly just right and wrong? Aren't there some things that we should be fighting for and aren't there some things we should be fighting over? And I think that's a great question and it might surprise you that I think the answer to that question is actually yes in some cases. A while back there was this book written called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff and the subtitle was And It's All Small Stuff. That's not really true. It's not all small stuff. In the Christian life there are some things that are worth fighting over. Now, how do we know what's small stuff and what's big stuff, right? That's the question. Well, to, to further clarify that, allow me to share with you or remind you of a framework that, that I use to help us biblically understand literally any issue that could come along our way. That, that's what these three buckets are for over here. And so, um, if you'll notice, I have three different categories set up of different issues that might come our way. And so the, the first category over here is the category that I call cardinal doctrines. Cardinal doctrines. Uh, in terms of a definition, a, a cardinal doctrine is one that is essential to the Christian faith. In other words, if you don't hold the issues in that bucket, you are not a Christian. You are teaching heresy. This is how central they are. Theologian Scott Harrell gives one example. He says, without the Trinity, he says, there is no Christian faith because the specific revelation of God entrusted to us in the New Testament is lost from view. And, and so these are the high-stakes beliefs 
Now, I wish I had made this bucket over here a little bit smaller because it's really a, a smaller grouping of issues that fit in here. Most theologians say there's like five to ten really key cardinal doctrines that should go in this bucket. Issues like the, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the deity of Christ, the, the second coming of Christ, justification by faith alone, the doctrine of the Trinity. Those are all cardinal doctrines of the faith. Now, the second bucket over here is this bucket that's called clear Bible teaching. In this bucket, these are issues that are clearly taught in the Word of God. I'll give you one example. From Ephesians chapter 5, uh, Paul says this. He says, do not get drunk with wine. Now, if you ask me what you should do regarding the issue of drunkenness or intoxication, there is some really clear Bible teaching about that. You might not like what the Scripture says about that issue, but the Bible teaches it, and it's not hard to understand. Other examples would be like, do not lie. Uh, do not be unequally yoked in marriage with another unbeliever. Uh, children, obey your parents. We can throw in there all of the Ten Commandments, as well as hundreds of other clear statements that have prohibitions or commands in the Bible. Clear Bible teaching. Are you with me? The third bucket is this bucket that we've been talking about today. This is the bucket that we're gonna just call the gray area bucket or the disputable issue bucket or the, the adiaphora issue. Uh, th these, these issues right here are the ones that are more debated. Uh, these issues are areas where we leave room for legitimate differences of opinion based on a sound biblical interpretation. Now, increasingly, we find this idea of gray areas addressed in the Bible. I would be surprised, though, if you have ever heard any sermons that are specifically addressing this topic. Uh, one reason is that some Christians have a very hard time coming to grips with the fact that the Bible does not provide clear answers on every single issue. There's a temptation to think the Bible should be like the old shell answer man. Do you remember that? That, that it should address every question and, and every answer that we have with equal specificity. We'd like everything to be black and white, but it's not. Some things are more gray. God has not give us, given us unlimited revelation. He has given us what we need with limited information and then asked us to maintain our unity with one another. But when it comes to unity in the local church, what I have found as a pastor, if I could just say very personally with you right now, I have found that it's these gray areas that often become the dry tinder upon which the sparks of church conflict are lit and begin to blaze. In fact, it never ceases to amaze me how worked up some people get over these gray areas. And what's disturbing is, is the energy people seem to have around these areas seems to be disproportional to what they're talking about. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that gray issues are unimportant. You can have a, an opinion. You can even have a strong opinion. But the encouragement from God's word here is that we ought not to quarrel about it and we ought not to elevate our opinion on a gray matter as if it's a right or wrong, clear Bible teaching, a moral ought. That's where we get into trouble. Instead, we have to leave room for maximum flexibility here so that our convictions on these things don't get imposed on another brother or sister and then lead to disunity in the local church. Chuck Swindoll says it well. He says, one of the marks of maturity is the ability to disagree without becoming disagreeable. He goes on to say, it takes grace. 
In fact, handling disagreements with tact is one of the crowning achievements of grace. Unfortunately, the older we get, the more brittle we become in our reactions, the more tedious and stubborn and fragile. For some strange reason, he says, this is especially true among evangelical Christians. You would think that the church would be the one place where we could find tolerance, tact, plenty of room for disagreement and open discussion. Not so. It is a rare delight to come across those in the family of God who have grown old in grace as well as in knowledge. Many a ministry lives on the edge of upheaval and borderline controversy simply because there is no room for disagreement, no freedom to negotiate, no open ear to those who may hold a different opinion. And so let's play a little game this morning. You can play there at home from your couch, wherever you're watching. I'd like to play a game with you, and I'd like you to participate with those that are sitting around you. The name of the game is going to be called Name That Issue, because one of the problems that's very, very common is that we mislabel issues in the church. Sometimes we will accidentally put a cardinal doctrine in a gray issue category, or sometimes we'll treat a gray issue as if it's really a clear Bible teaching. And so here's how we're going to play the game. I'm just going to read you an issue, and you're going to pause, and you're going to tell the other people that are watching with you, if there are any, what category you think that issue should be in. Should it be a cardinal doctrine? Should it be a gray area? Or should it be a clear Bible teaching? Are you ready to play? Here we go. Let's start with a couple of these issues. Issue number one, the deity of Jesus Christ. What do you think? Cardinal doctrine. This is a cardinal doctrine. We have to believe that Jesus is God. Some of you got that right. You're getting an A so far on the test. Ready? Number two, here we go. Choices of entertainment, including movies rated PG-13 and rated R. I think that's going to be a, a gray area. Some people have strong convictions about that. Kind of depends on the content, but that's a disputable issue. How about number three? Paying your taxes to the government. Well, I think we learned from Romans 13 that that's a clear Bible teaching, that we are instructed to obey the law. Number four, your choice of which political party best represents Christian values. Here's where I'm starting to get into trouble, right? But that is a gray area. Christians disagree. We have Christians on both sides of the aisle. Uh, how about this one? Number five, drinking alcohol in moderation. Well, people disagree on that, right? Some people say it's not okay. Some people say it's okay. I'm going to put that in the gray issue category, and you know there's legitimate disagreements on that. But how about this one? Getting drunk or intoxicated with alcohol or substances. Well, that's going to be a clear Bible teaching, so we're going to put that in the middle. How are you guys doing so far? Are we starting a fight with your, your family members? Hopefully that, that's you're starting a little, stirring a little, the pot a little bit. We're having some fun here. Okay, number seven, the parent's responsibility to raise and train their children in the Christian faith. That's going to be a clear Bible teaching, right? That's what we're instructed to do in Deuteronomy 6 and other places. Number, the next one here, whether you homeschool, public school, or private school your children, well, that's going to be a gray area. And so we're going to allow for legitimate disagreements there. How about this one? Punching your brother in the stomach when he bothers you. What do you think? That's a clear Bible teaching, right? Some of you got that wrong. You said that's a gray area. That, that's a clear Bible teaching, okay? You cannot do that. Ready? Here we go. Next one. A Christian's decision to celebrate in certain holidays like Halloween. Well, we have strong opinions on both sides, and I'm going to put that in the gray area category, right? We're going to allow for disagreement there. How about this one? The return of Jesus Christ, the physical return of Jesus Christ. 
that's going to be a cardinal doctrine. We should all agree that Christ is returning. But how about this one? The specific end times view you hold, such as premillennial, pre-tribulational dispensationalism. That's going to be a gray area. Brothers and sisters disagree on that topic, right? How about this one? Affirming the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity. I hope you're saying that that's a cardinal doctrine, right? That's, that's something that we hold as a tenet of our faith. But how about this one? The modern use of spiritual gifts such as healing tongues and prophecy. Well, that's going to be a gray area. Different Christians disagree on which gifts are still operating today. How about this one? The definition of traditional marriage. I'm going to put that in clear Bible teaching. The Bible really does make a clear definition for us there. How about this one? The exact roles and authority structure that exists between a husband and a wife in the home, such as complementarianism or egalitarianism. That's going to be a gray area. We have different Christians who disagree on the roles in the home and the roles of men and women. How about this one? The inspiration of the Bible. What do you think? That's going to be a cardinal doctrine. We believe the Bible is God-breathed, 2 Timothy chapter 3, right? But how about this one? Which Bible translation is the best one to use? That's going to be a gray area. We're going to need to find unity and agree to disagree on that. We're not going to make that a source of tension or division. How about this one? The biblical command to sing praise to God with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's a clear Bible teaching, right? We find that right in the scriptures. How about this one? Exact style of worship music, whether that be hymns or contemporary music. That's going to be a gray area. Good people disagree on music style. That's why we have all those stations on the radio, right? So we're going to keep that in the right category. How about this one? The responsibility of the church to make disciples. Clear Bible teaching. This is the Great Commission. We have to do that. How about this one, though? The methodology of discipleship ministry in the church. Should we have a formal Sunday school program, a small group program, or something else? That's going to be a gray area. We're going to allow for Christians to agree to disagree on different methodology of discipleship. I think you get the idea here. Thank you guys for playing at home. So Hopefully you guys got 100 on your test today. But I want you to just understand these different categories as we think this through. Now, don't get me wrong. Gray issues are not unimportant issues. They're just debatable. They ought never to cause disunity in a local church. For that to happen, though, that takes a lot of maturity on your part, especially when you feel strongly about an, a gray area issue or when you have a personal preference that you're really passionate about and you've studied hard about. I, I, to keep unity in a church uh, and, and to keep from disagreeing with someone, we have to categorize these things correctly. And when we're in the gray area category, we have to have a self-sacrificial attitude. It's a conscience, conscious choice not to be judgmental toward those who disagree. We have to have the maturity not to ridicule others who feel differently. And generally, it requires the loving attitude of putting your neighbor ahead of yourself. Now, let me just mention one more area of disagreement that a lot of churches are feeling right now today. It is the response to the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, recently, there was an article on the Gospel Coalition website. The title was, Church, Don't Let Coronavirus Divide You. Look at the picture. You see those wearing masks on the one side and those not wearing masks on the other side. And both sides have something in common. Did you notice what it is? They're both angry at each other. I've noticed that the mass media and even on social media, 
People are remarkably confident about this in their views on the pandemic, even though those views have shifted significantly over the last few months. We as leaders are thinking about how to regather and reopen our campus. I beg you, church family, not to make this a source of division. We are trying to make decisions where your safety is our first priority. Please be gracious toward those who may disagree with you on this matter. We are muddling through this together, and I'm just asking you to be patient, to be gentle, to be humble, and gracious toward those who might have a different view on what's best. It's not just about you, it's about us. And it's also about how we present our community to those around us, right? Listen, in the church, we have to realize as we look outside, everyone else is fighting. Our politicians are fighting, our neighbors are fighting, people on social media are fighting. We as the church must not divide over these things because our unity is important. Our unity is our witness The gospel is more important than winning in an individual conflict like this. And so please keep reminding yourselves, this pandemic is not forever, but our relationship with others in the body of Christ is. So as we continue to think about this, allow me to offer you three key words to remember how to relate to these three categories, and each of the words will correspond with each category. So let me come back over here to the buckets. The word that I want you to remember when it comes to cardinal doctrines is this word right here, fight. You ought to fight for the cardinal doctrines of the faith. Otherwise, there's a danger of heresy. See, cardinal doctrines are important. Uh, One theologian put it this way, uh, beliefs that are at odds with Orthodox Christian theology are a direct threat to the basic beliefs necessary for adequately understanding God's plan for personal salvation. So the Bible says we're supposed to contend for the faith and fight for the faith and pass down the, the, the faith that the apostles delivered to us. And so we must fight for these things, though we fight in a spirit of love. We can stand firm in such a way that seeks to persuade, not to antagonize uh, those who disagree. P.S., that probably means staying away from debates on social media. Uh, Listen to the words of John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. What will it profit a man if he gains his cause and silence his adversary, if at the same time he loses that humble, tender frame of spirit in which the Lord delights and to which the promise of his presence is made? The answer is, there's no profit at all. Remember what Paul said elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. And so we must remember that we do this in a spirit of love. Okay, the next category, uh, when it comes to clear Bible teaching, over, I'll come over here. The word that I want you to remember when it comes to this category is this word right here, obey. You need to obey when something is clearly taught in the Bible. Like the Nike slogan used to say, just do it. Just don't lie. Just don't steal. Just obey. Just don't practice immorality. God calls us to align our lifestyle to the moral imperatives of his word or else we slip into hypocrisy or else we slip into this, this, this concept of we're not really living what we say we believe. And so we must 
obey God's word. And by his grace, because of the transforming work that God is doing inside of us, and because of the gospel, we do have the power to obey through the Holy Spirit. Now we come to the last bucket. Uh, When it comes to this last category, the category of gray areas, uh, the word that I want you to use here when it comes to gray areas is this word right here, accept. Accept those who may disagree with you over a gray area, or else we, we go into the danger of legalism. We must accept those who may have a different opinion about this. And I get this word accept directly from our passage today as the final verse in this section of Romans, chapter 15, verse 7, says this, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring, bring praise to God. That word accept there means more than just tolerate. It means to bring someone toward yourself. It describes the way you receive a guest into your home like an honored guest. It's this open-hearted and glad granting of access. That's the kind of attitude we should have toward one another in the body. We are to regard one another as family, extending to one another open hearts and open arms, even those who disagree with us on gray areas. That doesn't mean you have to agree with them. It doesn't mean you have to let go of your own convictions. It just means that you accept them without needing to change their mind. It means you welcome them as a brother or sister in the Lord and you receive them with with a spirit of kindness. Uh, The solution to the disagreement that we experience over disputable issues in the church, according to the Apostle Paul, is really simple. Both sides, he says, should stop lobbying for their positions. Both sides should stop quarreling with one another. Uh, Both sides should stop judging. Both sides should stop the ridiculing Both need to learn that the mature thing to do as a Christian is to accept one another then just as Christ has accepted you. I was reminded of a poem this week as it relates to divisions that exist in the church and that exist in racial relations in our country. Let me read that poem to you. It's called The Cold Within. Six humans trapped by happenstance in bleak and bitter cold Each one possessed a stick of wood, or so the stories told. Their dying fire in need of logs, but the first man held his back. For of the faces round the fire, he noticed one was black. The next man, looking across the way, saw one not of his church and couldn't bring himself to give the fire his stick of birch. The third one sat in tattered clothes. He gave his coat a hitch, Why should his log be put to use to warm the idle rich? The rich man just sat back and thought of the wealth he had in store and how to keep what he had earned from the lazy, shiftless poor. And the black man's face bespoke revenge as the fire passed from his sight, for all he saw in his stick of wood was a chance to spite the white. The last man of this fallen group did not accept for gain Giving only to those who gave was how he played the game. Their logs held tight in death's still hands was proof of human sin. They did not die from the cold without. They died from the cold within. You can see the obvious application in many areas. When it comes to gray areas, if you do not leave room for disagreement of opinion here, 
I want to say very strongly, you are opposing the work of the gospel itself. The gospel is designed to bring different people together in one unified church, Jew and Gentile, male and female, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, people of all different ethnicities, all different political backgrounds. The diversity of the one true church of Jesus Christ is its beauty and its glory, and to not allow for gray areas opposes the very movement of the gospel in bringing diverse people together to Christ. Brothers and sisters, let me challenge you to accept one another as Christ has accepted you. I'll close the message with the story that I began with. After the attack on that sculpture from Michelangelo, the work was painstakingly restored, and its, its place in St. Peter's uh, was, uh, it was back in its, in its rightful place. It's just to the right of the entrance, and, and now it's protected by bulletproof uh, acrylic glass. A reminder to me that church unity can be restored, but it must also be protected by all of us, for it is God's masterpiece, the church. Let's do our part to keep unity with one another. Would you pray with me? Right there at home, let's bow our heads, let's close our eyes and pray together. Oh God, in the words of St. Francis of Assisi, we pray this morning, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. As we close our service today, we always like to leave you with some discussion questions that you can continue your discussion of the Word of God around your family's table. And so here's some questions for you to consider and talk about together today. What contemporary matters are disputable issues in our church today? Uh, perhaps you can think of some more that we didn't even cover. There's many. Number two, can you see an area where you may have weak faith and another area where you may have strong faith? How can you have greater self-awareness? And lastly, how does this temptation towards disunity challenge you? And why does all of this matter? We hope that those questions are helpful for you as you continue to study God's Word for yourself. Now let me leave you with these words of benediction today. Brothers and sisters, be steadfast and immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor is not in vain. May the Lord bless you and may the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord give you his peace. Good day. God bless you all. Thanks for watching our worship service today.